Turn in your Bibles or your bulletins to uh, Acts 4, Acts 4, 1 through 12. I always recall the story of the lame man being healed as sort of this Bible story, Sunday school story, but I've realized that it occupies two whole chapters and significant sermons and is a major part of the, the uh, fulfillment of the first stage of the Great Commission. And it's an important story. So we continue on in Acts chapter 4 um, as we continue to look at this story of the lame man being healed and its repercussions. Um, so let's pray as we go to God's Word. Our Father, forgive our lukewarmness. We have the same Christ, the same Spirit, the same commission that the apostles had. Yet our conviction wanes. We live in a tepid age. Indifference has slowly but surely crept into our own souls. So Lord, reprove and discipline us because you love us. So that we might be zealous and repent. May we ever learn to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts so that we can truly delight in Him alone and find boldness to proclaim Him alone as the Savior of the world. Amen. Let's stand and read our text for this morning, Acts chapter 4, 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they attested to, attested, arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. You may be seated. The most intense opposition to the gospel comes when it is a disruption to the worldly desires of society. Uh, If it challenges political authority or dominance, if it threatens to suppress the desires of of the flesh, 
then then they really want to squash Christianity because it means something to them. In our age, the Christian message is in a standoff with the sexual revolution, among other things. Someone, I don't know who, declared this month to be Pride Month. Our society has drifted so far down the path of blindness and darkened foolish hearts that we are collectively Sodom, groping for the door of perversity. Opposition rarely comes in the form of cogent theological argument. Rather, as we stand for the truth of the gospel in these times, we can expect to be unfairly maligned. That's what First Peter tells us. We will preach that Christ came to redeem us both from the guilt and from the bondage of sin. We will preach that sexuality is not an identity, but Christ is our identity, and yet will be heard as judgmental, narrow-minded, and as bigots. If pressure continues to mount, genuine Christianity will be increasingly maligned and marginalized. As Christ's witnesses, we will face suffering. That's my point. We will face opposition. It may be something other than I just described. God, God may grant freedom in that area, but it, it will be something. We will, we will face opposition as preachers of the gospel. So how can we, feeble as we are, be bold witnesses in the face of opposition? The Apostle Peter teaches us in his first epistle, where he says in chapter 3, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Notice the contrast. 14b, have no fear of them or be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Or maybe more familiar, sanctify the Lord Christ the Lord, as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's what he's saying is how you have no fear and how you're not troubled is first sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts. The enemy does not win if the church is reduced to a marginalized remnant. The enemy wins if we cave, if we do not believe the gospel. If we want to stand firm as men and women who are faithful and effective witnesses of Christ, we must first begin by sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. Sanctify means set apart. Set Jesus out. Set him above all other rival lords in our hearts. He is the one and only true Lord. Witness follows conviction. We, we can't proclaim something that we fir- don't first believe, particularly when the stakes are high. So in this passage, Peter, who once trembled at the questioning of a little girl, 
now stands before some of the most powerful men in Israel and declares to them the Christ that they crucified. By the power of the Spirit in him, he now has the conviction to believe that whatever authority these men have, Jesus has more. Whatever they think about Jesus, Peter knows for certain that he is the Messiah. That he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, to all rule and authority. And so that conviction is what he then proclaims. By God's grace, Peter has sanctified Jesus in his heart as exclusive, one and only, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. And his witness follows his conviction. So my hope is that this message will help us to uh, interact with that conviction and take some of it home with us and take it with us into the world. So Luke here begins by telling us about what really is the first real opposition the church has faced since the ascension of Christ. He says, as they were speaking to the people. So you remember... This is in the context of the healing of the lame man, that the lame man goes into the temple and he's leaping and jumping around for joy and people run, they sprint, to, they're causing a commotion. And so that's the context. As they were speaking to the people, P- Peter's proclaiming Christ to this crowd that had gathered. He'd taken the uh, apologetic opportunity. And now as they were speaking, the priests and the, what I've been calling the temple men descend upon him. So it says the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Uh, so I think it helps to understand that these, these religious leaders were not li- like me, like pastors. They had more authority. My, my authority is uh, ministerial and declarative, quote-unquote. They, mo- they had a different kind of authority. Much of it wrapped up in Roman politics. I mean, after all, the renovations to the Second Temple were Herod's renovations. As we see in Acts, these men have the power to arrest, to flog, and even to stone. So it says, priests, captain of the temple, and Sadducees. The priests were, of course, responsible for the ministry of the sacrificial system. Uh, I, I skipped over this like three times, and then I finally noticed, captain of the temple. Who's that guy? Uh, He was really the head of a temple police force. Daryl Bach says that he was a member of the high priestly family and of the number two main man at the temple, an elite position among the Levites who made up the temple guard. He officiated over the daily whole offering and was captain of the temple police, whose role at the temple was to keep the peace and not allow any messianic expectations that Rome would dislike. So that was the captain of the temple. And then the Sadducees we're familiar with from the Gospels. They're mostly uh, a, a sect of Judaism made up of lay aristocrats, Notably, for our purposes here, they rejected the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they were pretty pragmatic. They were pretty politically motivated. They had a keen interest in preserving Israel's status with Rome. So in verse 2, you can see that they were greatly annoyed. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus 
the resurrection from the dead. I find this word greatly annoyed to be humorous. It's the same word in Acts 16 um, in Philippi when the demon-possessed girl is following Paul and his companions around and she's shouting for days. Uh, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She keeps following them, saying that, saying that. After days of this, Luke tells us Paul became greatly annoyed. He cast the demon out and got himself into big trouble. The word is actually a little stronger than annoyed. It means to be worked up or to be irked. These men of the temple, they were in a real huff over what these men were teaching. And it's no wonder if you were a member of a sect that argued against the resurrection of the dead and were trying to keep the peace so the Romans wouldn't take away your nice temple or your monotheism or truth be told, your corrupt lucrative enterprise Uh, how would you feel if some guy came in off the street healed someone causing a great stir and began convincing people that the man you crucified for claiming to be God and king of the Jews was alive and is reigning in heaven the whole scenario is a threat to everything they have going on their theology and their political status are being challenged And worst of all for them, people are starting to believe it in droves. 5,000 men. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. These were serious offenses that the apostles were committing Claiming someone to be Messiah and Lord and causing a stir in the temple. That's no small thing. And in some sense, these temple men were doing their job by defending against wild claims. They were guarding the purity of the temple, or so they thought. And so they held them in custody, not to punish them, but to hold trial the next day. Now, they probably would have liked to do more, but the the movement of the apostles was gaining traction. 5,000 men heard and believed, it says. It's not not clear here if this is 5,000 total. You remember at Pentecost, 3,000 believed, and perhaps now he's he's doing addition, or or if it's 5,000 new men, or if it's 5,000 men not counting women and children. So this could be up to 10 or 15,000 People, this is a significant movement. Whatever the number one was, it was a substantial percentage of the population of Jerusalem. And I tend to think of Acts and the New Testament as general, in general as the Jews reject the gospel, the Gentiles believe the gospel. But that's not the case. 5,000 men believed in Jerusalem. By God's grace, the the first stop on the the Great Commission Railway boarded many, many Jews, which both tied the hands of these, these temple rulers and freaked them out. So we see the opposition to the gospel that Peter's preaching is not merely a theological squabble. Certainly the Sadducees rejected the idea of the resurrection. 
But the message of the apostles is also a direct threat to the comfortable way of life these men have constructed for themselves. It's a threat to their power, to their authority, and to their influence. And that is when the gospel of Jesus Christ encounters the hottest opposition. We should notice also their hardness of heart. They can see with their own eyes the lame man standing there. Proof of the authority of Christ working through the apostles. And yet they're hard of heart. Rather than see it for what it is, they reject it. We should remember that in our own gospel fights, if you will. We should have pity on those who don't believe rather than hatred for them. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. I mean, rebel hearts are enemies against Christ, but they're also held captive by the schemes of the devil. The way to defeat them is not by attacking them or degrading them, but by preaching the gospel of Christ to them in hopes that they will come over. And knowing that either God will give them eyes to see, or they will reject it and they'll face Christ on the last day. The solution is the gospel. Now you can imagine what this might have been like, this experience for, for Paul and for John, Jewish men who had grown up in the area, grown up, I assume, with a reverence and esteem for the men in, with authority in the temple. And now here they are being arrested by them. In verse 5, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. So this is probably an assembly of the Sanhedrin, which was, uh, for lack of a better way of thinking of it, a uh, supreme court in Israel. And these are the same men responsible for the condemning of Jesus. Now, Annas was high priest from A.D. 6 through 15. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law and was high priest throughout the time of Jesus' ministry and even now into Acts. So it causes some scholars a degree of consternation that he attributes the high priesthood to Annas. But probably he's just recognizing the fact that Annas is the uh, patriarch of the high priestly family. Uh, So one source I read said that they would sit in a circle or a semicircle so they could all see each other, and then the objects of the meeting would be sat in the middle. So it says when they sat them in their midst. This is an intimidating, austere group of authority. It says that they inquired of them. They inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Because it wasn't us. That's their point. They don't really care by what power or authority. It wasn't us. We do not sanction you teaching here. We do not sanction your teaching. You have no right to be here. That's their point. Also, take note of the consistent theme throughout this whole story of the healing of the lame man and the emphasis on the name. It happens over and over again, the name. But by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk is pervasive. The construction of Luke's narrative emphasizes the ongoing authority of the Messianic King 
ruling and reigning from heaven, and his apostles sent in his name on his behalf. Now, though their question was fairly rhetorical, Peter takes the opportunity to answer their question. Emboldened by the Spirit, he preaches Christ to this this powerful, murderous group of authorities. And at least the way I read it, his response is dripping with sarcasm. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? It's like he's saying, are are you really calling us into question for, for a good deed, for healing somebody? Is this really a problem for you? It's an audacious response for a man who not long before had been so afraid of this assembly that he denied Jesus for fear of the fact he might suffer the same fate. And now he almost mocks them. It's a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit to, to produce conviction in our souls and to quell our natural fear of man and replace it with a proper fear of the Lord. So, let's get something straight, Peter says. You did not sanction these events or these messages, but I do have an authority, and it's not you. I come in the name of a higher authority. Oh, and by the way, you crucified him. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And by the power of God, he lives and reigns. And by his name, this man stands before you well. And he says, I want you to know this, and I'm going to tell all of Israel about it too. The, the clarity of Peter here and the conviction, the power of Christ's spirit and his apostle, Christ crushing his enemies through the apostles. Peter continues in verse 11 that this this man, this man from little old Nazareth, you, you remember the saying, can anything good come from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, wh- whom you rulers despised, whom you crucified, he is the messianic cornerstone. And that's how they would have seen it. Le- learned men, they, the Jewish literature of the time would have interpreted Psalm 118.22, which is the verse he references mess- as a messianic text. And it comes in the context, and actually if you want to turn over there to Psalm 118, it comes in the context of suffering and hatred and attacks from the enemies. Psalm 118, and we'll actually start in verse 5. The verse that he references is verse 22 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone but again it's the context of hatred and suffering and attacks from the enemy beginning in verse 5 out of my distress i called to the lord and the lord answered me and set me free the lord is on my side i will not fear what can man do to me the lord is on my side as my helper i shall look in triumph on those who hate me It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Then jumping down to 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So even the early Jewish commentary on this text applied this messianically. Peter intentionally draws this parallel. These leaders, they are supposed to be the builders. And they are here the enemies of the psalmist who has rejected him, who has cast him aside as useless, as refuse. They are the princes who are supposed to care for and construct the temple of God, the people of God, the Lord's holy sanctuary. And Jesus, he's the rightful king. He's the one who has been cast off by the builders. He has been esteemed by the Lord, though. A.T. Robertson says that the cornerstone is either the highest cornerstone right under the roof or the cornerstone under the building. Whichever it is, it's the stone of reference for every other stone in the course. It's the stone that the mason would take the most time and most care selecting and placing. It's the most valuable and esteemed stone. And Peter is saying to these men, you cast off the cornerstone. He's the Messiah, but you crucified him. But the Lord has highly esteemed him and given him all rule and authority. He is the cornerstone. It is the name, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by which we heal and by which we preach. Again, it's, it's the name. It's all about the name throughout this whole passage. The name of Jesus. In verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I, I just imagine Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander just bubbling, just to, turning beet red, about to burst with anger. But... but the atmosphere around them is holding them in because there are many, many people believing they can't do anything to these guys. If you want to maintain political dominance, you can't anger five or ten thousand people that you want to hold in your hand. So Peter here, he comes to them and accuses them very severely. And yet he's not seeking their destruction, but their repentance and their salvation. There's absolute exclusivity in his message. This man, this one man from Nazareth, whom you murdered, bears the only name by which we may be saved. He and he alone is Lord and Messiah. He alone brings salvation to his people. No one's come before, no one lives now, and there's no one for whom we must wait. No other name than Jesus. He's it. Take note of the absolute exclusivity of Peter, as well as the absolute conviction here. These things, given by the power of the Holy Spirit, are what undergirds his boldness in proclaiming and bearing witness to Christ. We live in an era of convictional flimsy, Collectively, we have an allergy to exclusive truth claims. But here, in this text, for Peter, there's no, in my humble opinion, 
There's no, for the sake of argument, there's no, for me, for me this is the case. He's precise and he's bold and he's declarative. There's no room here for a single if, and, or but. And there's some things we just can't move on, the gospel of Jesus Christ being number one among them. So the, the exclusivity and the universality of trish, Christian uh, truth claims is what the world finds so offensive about our gospel. We're, we're fine as long as we believe what we believe and keep it to ourselves. But once we start saying that Jesus is the only way and that he is their only way, then the ire starts to go up. Machen, almost prophetically, in Christianity and liberalism, a hundred years ago, says, in that little word only lay all the offense. Without that word, there would have been no persecutions. The cultured men of the day would probably have been willing to give Jesus a place and an honored place among the saviors of mankind. Without its exclusiveness, the Christian Christian message would have seemed perfectly inoffensive to the men of the day. The offense of the cross, however, is done away, and so is the glory and the power. So when Peter says, sanctify Jesus as Lord in your heart, that's more than massaging warm feelings about Jesus into your heart. It's truly a a binding to your very guts, the resolute conviction that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the only Lord of the earth. That's what it means to set him apart as exclusive, sanctified Lord. His authority is universal. His power is unlimited and his saints are his army. And he alone has the power to save us from our sins. This message is practical to me. People in my own sphere, in my own extended family, have, as of late, been calling for a laying down of the exclusivity and universality of the Christian gospel. They would like to suppress the bold proclamation of truth and promote disobedient lifestyles. And I'm sure you feel the same pressure in your own circles. And the hardest part is that the opposition comes from people that we love and respect and like. Once the apostles saw the truth, I'm sure they were heartbroken at the hardness of their own countrymen and and these, these very leaders who were supposed to be leading and shepherding them. Sometimes I think the torture for our faith looks less like fire or waterboarding or imprisonment and looks more like the agony in our own hearts at the rebellion of those we love. And we have to be careful because those are the kinds of tender spots the devil will use to sap our strength. So this morning my goal is to call you to resolve, to conviction, to boldness, and to proclamation. Paul says it best in 2 Timothy 2, 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, don't give up on those people that you love. Continue to correct them with gentleness. Perhaps God may grant them repentance and free them from the snares of the devil. But we begin, not with proclamation, but sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. Setting Him apart as Lord. Knowing deep down in our gut that Jesus alone is Messiah. The stone that the builders rejected. The cornerstone. And knowing for certain that His name is the name of the King of all the world. And that you live and serve that name. And knowing for certain that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let that be our conviction and our proclamation. Amen.